Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco. Today's episode is called the Sport and Competition Law Podcast because we're going to focus on four very important recent competition law cases in sport. Three of them were all in the EU's Court of Justice. That is the European Super League case, the ISU case and the Royal Antwerp case. And one was in a domestic FA Rule K arbitral tribunal. That's the FIFA Agents Cap case. I'm joined today by four experts. Kieran Bill Casey is a leading silk in competition law and sport. In fact, even though Kieran is a good mate, he did appear for the Football League against QPR, who I acted for many years ago in a competition law challenge to the FFP rules. Ravi Mehta is a leading junior barrister from Blackstone Chambers with a strong competition law and sport practice. I've had the pleasure of working with Ravi in many cases before, including our successful challenge to the EFL's salary cap rules a few years back. Natasha Simonson is another excellent junior barrister from Blackstone Chambers, specialising in public law, human rights, regulatory and competition law. In addition to data protection, something I know because I've had the pleasure to work with Natasha in relation to the fascinating Project Red Card case concerning the trade in players' personal data. Finally, someone who isn't a barrister from Blackstone Chambers, Professor Oke Odudu is a director of the Centre for European Legal Studies and he lectures on competition law at Cambridge University. I first met Oke at the Agents Panel, which featured in episode 12 of our podcast. And given that some competition lawyers seem to have trouble not speaking in jargon, and not shrouding their special expertise with mystery, I was most impressed at how Oke was able to explain in normal language the principles of competition law as they applied to sport, which is exactly what I'm sure all our guests are going to do today. I should also mention, as I've just heard, that Oke is the manager of the Cherry Hinton Lions Under Nines, who compete within the Cambridgeshire Mini Soccer League and are currently in the semi-finals, so has direct football experience. Each of our guests will be analysing one of each of the four cases that we are considering. And because Ravi can't be here today as we record this episode, I caught up with him yesterday to give us his views on the European Super League case. So Ravi, of all the cases we're discussing today, More's been said about the European Super League case than anything else, but what was it actually about? Thanks, Nick. I wanted to start by saying it's great to be here and to discuss what you say, as you say, one of the most significant cases, I think, probably since Mecca Medina, which is almost 20 years ago now. Um, I think the Super League needs no real introduction. The events that led to it were splashed all over the papers and caused impassioned responses on all sides, including, as we know, demonstrations in the streets by fans. And I should say it's been heralded as a remarkable development, but also as a straightforward outcome. And I think, to be fair, both of those characterizations are right. And what I'm going to try to do today is to explain how. But suffice it to say that any sports lawyer nowadays needs to be aware of this decision and to try to navigate the tools of EU and competition law that are contained in it. So what was the case about? Well, as we all know, a number of the most famous football clubs in English, Spanish and Italian football proposed to establish a new semi-closed league to replace the UEFA Champions League. 
the proposal was for them to continue as members of their uh, national leagues and also, of course, for their players to be eligible and to participate in international competitions, whether it's the Euros or the World Cup. But it was the UEFA Champions League that they were proposing no longer to be members of and instead to be a member of this semi-closed league. And the reaction from UEFA and FIFA was to issue a public announcement to say they would not accept the proposal and also that they would sanction any players or clubs who took part in it. And that's really all that had happened before the clubs, but particularly Real Madrid and um, Barcelona Atletico Madrid, had gone to the commercial court in Madrid to seek interim relief from the Madrid court to say, we don't want UEFA or FIFA to take any steps that would harm our interests or make it impossible for us to pursue this. Now, as we know, pause there on the law, there were then developments in the public sphere and a number of most, if not all, the English clubs pulled out or said they're not interested and so did the Italian clubs, um, bar one, I think Juventus. And then really the case was sent off and nothing really happened. And I'll come back to what's happened on the facts a bit later. But so uh, for those who are not familiar, the Madrid court did, found initially or on a preliminary basis what it thought the facts were and then sent a series of questions to the Luxembourg court, which the Luxembourg court was supposed to answer. And what we're going to discuss today are those answers. As with any lawyer's story, it's always good to start off with what the case was not about. And here are the two main things. The first is that the CJU's judgment is not the final answer on whether the actual proposed Super League, or frankly any Super League, is lawful or not. The focus of the case in Luxembourg was about UEFA and FIFA's rules on the prior authorization of other competitions and their potential application to new competitions. And also the court looked at the public announcement that the two bodies made, but not the specifics. And that's something that the Madrid court is going to have to determine. The second thing is that the court emphasized that it was not looking at other key rules in, for example, FIFA and UEFA's systems, for example, taking part in international matches. And although the Advocate General commented, for example, that he thought it would be unfair for a player on one of these teams not to be able to play for their national team, the court didn't deal with that. So neither of those two issues, which have often been the most exciting in the papers, were actually decided. Then finally, it's hard to encapsulate the judgment, so I urge anyone interested to read the whole thing. But it was a big deal. 22 of the 27 EU member states turned up and made submissions. And that doesn't happen very often. Two EFTA states also did. That's by far and away, as far as I'm aware, a record. I recall a high-profile data protection and national security case I did where only 15, I say only, 15 states turned up. So it shows you just how important sport is. And the court was explicit on that. It said sport matters, football matters on a cultural, educational and social level. Just, just out of interest that's on that point, Ravi, what, what did the majority of those states who intervened say? What was their position? So one of the joys of the CJU procedure is you don't always know if you weren't there. But it sounds as though most of the states were intervening to defend the importance of sport and football in particular. A number of them, I think, were defending the status quo. Some of them were less protective of the status quo. And then some of them were saying this is all too premature because all that's happened is an announcement. So I think it was a bit of a mixed bag, but I think generally they were there to say this is very important. Interesting that states see football and sport, but football in particular is so important that I think I'd, I'd heard somewhere else there were perhaps more interventions in this case than any case 
that's been before this court before, which is quite incredible. Yeah, I think it is a record. Moving on then, what was the decision? What did the court decide? So the CJU held that there was no issue in principle for UEFA and FIFA having rules to require the prior approval and authorization of events or competitions for their clubs and players that play in their clubs. But the courts, <laughs> the court did um, criticize the particular rules as a matter of principle. And its principal criticism was that the rules are not what it calls transparent, objective, and non-discriminatory. And so that they were liable to be misapplied or to protect incumbents and be difficult for a new entrant or a rival competition. The court also held that the holding of exclusive rights, for example, to exploit broadcasting and media without any of the rules of the kind that it said should happen, so transparent and non-discriminatory, was a further potential lever of competition that could be problematic. So its principal concern was that any system like this could be justified but had to be transparent, non-discriminatory, and so on. And then it, what it said, it recognized that there were potential efficiencies from the status quo, including, for example, solidarity and trickle down to lower leagues. But it left the real question to the national court to decide. And what it didn't do is to follow the advocate general's reasoning, which was to say, there's no legal monopoly here for UEFA or FIFA. A new entrant can go along and set up their own organization. What's the problem, effectively? Instead, the court went further and, and said, that because of the dominant position of UEFA and FIFA, it was effectively, quote, impossible to set up viably a competition outside their ecosystem. That's power 149. And rather remarkably, in my view, the court held that even just announcing an intention to potentially sanction players and clubs was a potential breach of the EU rules. And so even though there haven't been any real decisions or applications in this case, that was enough. And so... Why? Because it would actually stop people doing anything, the fear of it. Is that why? Yes, that's the suggestion. They don't go into the reasoning. But I think the point was that that enough was a potential deterrent. And so then to, to come back to what the outcome was, there were three characterizations under EU in competition law. The first was that the specific UEFA and FIFA rules were liable to be a restriction by object of competition in the market for organizing and arranging football competitions in Europe. And that really means, for those who don't know, that a restriction by object is so capable of harming competition that you don't have to look into the detailed economic evidence as to whether there is an impact and a negative impact on competition. By its very nature, it's serious enough. And just again, for, for those of our listeners who might not know, that's because is it a restriction by object is the actual motivation for the rule. The, the reason it's coming in is to stop competition. Is that, is that right or is that too simplistic? It's partly an intention uh, aspect and, and traditionally it was looked at that way in, in some cases. But, but I think more properly, the, the modern view is that it's really just the nature of the, the conduct. So, for example, if you fix prices is the traditional example. By its nature, you're trying to control what price you charge. Um, but that's a bit less obvious here. But that's that was the issue. Can it be said that this type of rule is by its fundamental nature so limiting of competition that it's anti-competitive? And the court said, yes, in principle, it is. And, and just okay, before you go on to the next points, that was very different, wasn't it, to the opinion of Advocate General Rantos? And it's perhaps surprised people because they were expecting the court to follow that opinion. Is that right? Yes. For the uninitiated, it's still a small category of cases where you find an object restriction. And again, for those who know a little about this space, 
there was a panel decision in the Saracens case which found that a salary cap was not a by-object infringement. Um, and as you say, the Advocate General in this case didn't think that it was by definition so harmful. And actually, even the CJU's finding that in principle you can have prior authorization rules suggested that it wasn't necessarily that harmful, but they did feel that in the absence of clear criteria and transparent system for applying, the rule was liable to be a broad discretion for a governing body, and that the court thought was problematic enough. Yes, right, so sorry I interrupted you. We got, we got number one, it's an object restriction. What else? The second one was um, the other way that competition cases sometimes brought is to say if you're a dominant undertaking, you can't abuse your dominant position. And the court found that, and that's not new, UEFA and FIFA are dominant on their relevant markets. But it also found that by the same conduct, adopting and implementing rules of this kind, it had in principle abused, they had both abused their dominant positions. So two different ways of characterizing the competition complaint, both effectively made out in the absence of different rules and implementation. The third way that the court characterized it was to say also, this is what's called a restriction on the free movement of services in Europe. And it was an, in principle, unjustified restriction for similar reasons, effectively. And so stepping back, it was obviously a big piece of news. And it was in some ways a surprise to many legal commentators. But also, in many ways, it was a lawyer's complaint because it was a complaint about the absence of rules that were compatible rather than anything more substantive about the rights and wrongs of a Super League model and so on. And if this was a football match, which it isn't, would it be fair to say the European Super League lawyers won and FIFA and UEFA lost? If you, if you had to give it, it's, if it's a draw, or a, a win or a lose, who won the case? I'm not going to take a long VAR delay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, actually, because commentators have taken entirely opposing positions. Uh, some people, essentially, many claim a victory. I think it's fair to say, given what the Advocate General said before, that this is definitely more positive for non-governing bodies, in the sense that it's a reassertion of a lot of the old cases from the ECJU, and it puts the onus on justifying rival competitions. But it's not a full win at all for either side. And it, as I'm going to come on to, I think, in our discussion, it almost raises as many questions as it answers. Yes, yeah, so I was going to go on to the immediate implications. I mean, most of what we've seen in the press is somewhat exaggerated reporting, suggesting this means there might be another European Super League tomorrow. And of course, we saw um, the um, promotion for a new European Super League competition, which looks a bit more competitive at the edges, but still sort of kept the, the big teams in forever by the look of it. What are the implications? Does this mean... A, a new European Super League in the next year or two? So, starting with the immediate implications for the case, um, perhaps boringly because the world moves on, but the case actually isn't over. It goes back to the Madrid court. I'm not aware of when the court will hear that. But the Madrid court will still determine whether the original Super League proposal is or is not lawful. And as you might recall, the reference that the Madrid court sent was already suggesting that it thought it might be justifiable or lawful. So that would open a whole can of worms which the world has maybe forgotten about. The second immediate consequence, as you say, is that the company promoting the Super League has offered an alternative, which in principle addresses some of the criticisms in the public about the original proposal. For example, a less closed league or 
relegation of some kind and promotion of some kind. But it's interesting. I don't know how realistic that is also, because when you see the clubs who are involved, for example, I think Atletico Madrid came out and said they're not interested even in the new proposal. There's been no explicit mention from other clubs also, other than, I think, Real Madrid and Barcelona, as to whether the new model is going to be pursued and if so, how. And so I think the, the, the brutal answer is that the original Super League idea is probably at an end. The new Super League idea will be presumably examined um, if the participants still want to go ahead with it and will have to be in the light of this, with a slant probably from the CJU. Um, and of course, the relevance of that will depend on which jurisdiction you're talking about, because obviously in England and post-Brexit, the position isn't necessarily as obvious as it might be in Spain, which is still banned by the CJU's rulings. What I was going to say before we turn to sort of wider implications for sport is I think the other practical outcome from this case, there are two principled kind of lessons learned. The first is we always talk in sport law about the specificity of sport. And I think this judgment talks about it as a sort of specificity-ish. The court did not adopt the advocate general's approach to emphasize the importance of sport law and sport to the EU, specifically by reference to Article 165 of the treaty. The court mentioned the importance and special nature of sport, but it didn't go so far as to say it had any legal or meaningful legal consequences as such. And that's paragraph 101. So I think that's the first big takeaway, which perhaps is, is a reassertion of Mecca Medina 18 years later. But it's interesting because a lot of people and commentators had thought that things had moved on and there was a reassertion of the special nature of sport. And the court seems to say only to a point. The second big takeaway is that I think contrary to some reports, and that's where it is important to be clear, I don't think it's a rejection of the European sports model. Um, the court is pretty clear that it, the pyramid structure and a single set of common rules are justifiable. The court expressly recognized the merit and importance of ensuring things like equality of opportunity, sporting merit, coordinating things like a calendar, for example, Para 144, and it repeatedly said that rules such as UEFA's and FIFA's were capable of justification. What's interesting is that the court went a bit further and said that in order to justify such rules, you have to show genuine, quantifiable efficiency gains. And so be a bit more granular than broad assertions of positive outcomes or efficiencies. We've talked about how the European Super League treated this as a victory for what they're doing. I think it's also right to say UEFA and FIFA said it wasn't really a defeat because they've changed their rules anyway, so it doesn't really matter. That That's perhaps a, a, a paraphrase of their position in the, in the PR wars that, that's going on. But how true is that? Because UEFA have changed their prior authorization rules, does that mean it's no problem for them anymore? Well, I think, I think it's absolutely right to recognise that FIFA and UEFA both um, came out and emphasised what I just mentioned, which is the court's protection of and recognition of the European sport model. Um, many of the leagues have in fact done the same and also stated their intention to pursue and protect the status quo. And I think it does make a difference in the sense that legal cases often take a long time. And as I said, the original dispute has sort of fallen away because any new dispute would have to be examined in the light of the new rules. And the stated position has certainly been that any new rules have taken the judgment on board and will do. And so it could be a completely different world in round two. And in some senses, uh, as with all of these cases we're discussing on today's podcast, the world has moved on and lessons have been learned.
So what are the wider legal implications in particular for sport? Because this is a sports law podcast. What are the wider legal implications of this decision? Yes, I think there are two um, principal implications. The first, um, and I think for many of our listeners will be a positive one, I suppose, is the increased legalization of sporting disputes. There's been a wide trend of that for many years, and then perhaps a dip and I think a return to that. And by which I mean that more and more sports are grappling with the necessity for clear and established rules on any number of topics linked mainly to their economic activities. And EU and competition law is one way in which that becomes relevant, but not the only one by any means. And I mean, I should say it's definitely not the first time that disputes have come to court about rival competitions. As our listeners may know, there was major disputes in the 90s about cricket, um, principally in Australia, but not only. Um, sports like boxing have them wired into the structure of the sport because there are multiple competitions that take place at the same time. And similarly, snooker saw some very high high profile litigation of this nature before. But then there was a dip and these sorts of disputes didn't really take place for some time. And I think there's definitely be a re- been a return to legal fights, litigation, and with the advent of potential new entrants. So that's implication number one. Implication number two, I think, is the potential for divergence and different decision makers. And I think the main tagline there is watch this space. As our listeners will know, this isn't the only show in town. Many other sports are currently grappling with this issue. There has been a long running dispute in basketball about which is the principal governing body and which calendar should be important. As the listeners also may be aware, there was a high profile case concerning golf last year with a decision by an arbitral panel involving myself and many of my colleagues which came to a different conclusion about the concept of dual membership and what rights it's allowed for a sports association. And as you're also going to discuss, I think, later in the podcast, this isn't the only case where you have divergent outcomes. So the agents' regulations decisions with a UK tribunal and a CAS award not finding exactly the same outcomes. And so I think more legalization and divergent outcomes means that a lot of things are up for grabs. Um, Views may differ on whether a rule is justified or not, lawful or not. And I think the CJU's decision doesn't necessarily actually give more certainty. It opens more questions. Thank you. So before I turn to the next case, I'd like to ask my guests for anything they would like to add about the ESL case. Uh, In particular, um, whether you agree with Ravi when I pushed him, that if you had to award points as to who won that case between FIFA and the UEFA, and uh, the European Super League, it was probably the Super League. Anyone want to agree or disagree with that? Hey, this is Kieran Beale. I think that's broadly right. They, they obviously won uh, the reference points before the Court of Justice. Whether or not it means that the Super League gets off the ground, I think is very much open to debate, uh, partly because the certainly the UK teams have pulled out of the uh, surrogate competition. And it may well be that the Spanish and Italian teams don't have the desire to take it forward, notwithstanding the technical victory in Luxembourg. So uh, watch this space, I think, is my answer. Thank you, Kieran. Um, so next I want to turn to Oke, who's going to tell us about the uh, recent football agents case in England against uh, the FA and FIFA, in particular involving the cost cap. Oh, OK, can you explain, first of all, what the case was about, who brought it, what the forum was in and so on? Absolutely. So uh, my facts can be simply stated. Um, uh, at its core, football is a simple game. Don't let the opposition score. Score. 
And simple as that sounds, individuals can carry out their necessary elements with a surprising variety of skill. So some players are better than others. And so teams are competing to attract the best players in order to enable them to compete and to attract the best players. Football clubs are using agents. And so the way I tell the story, agents are performing services for clubs. Agents are helping clubs get players. Now, just like players, some agents are better than others. So teams are going to need to compete to get the services of the better agents. So both players and agents, the way that the teams are competing is with money. Just pay more. That's an oversimplification, but it is the essential background to dispute. Okay. Now, over time, there is some concern with this situation. What those concerns are is also a matter of dispute. One thing that is clear is that agents can get paid a lot of money. Is that a problem in itself? Sport has become more lucrative. There are broadcasting rights, um, which have become more valuable. More people are interested. There is just more money in the game. So the issue isn't so much that agents are getting paid and getting paid a lot. It's that some people in the game are not getting paid or are not getting paid a lot. And this is really at the grassroots level at which the talent is being developed. There is not more money. And so there's a general concern that somehow more money needs to reach the grassroots level. Okay, now, a second concern is that although I've said the agent provides services to clubs, it's not so clear that is actually what's going on. Surely they are the player's agent providing services to players. They are not helping clubs find players, they are helping players find clubs. And if that's true, agents should be paid by players. And if players are paying agents, they should know what their agent does for them. So if the agent works for the player and the agent makes it clear what they do for the player, the proponents of the argument say agents would just receive a lot less money. So although there's no logical connection, if agents receive less, there'll be more money available that might filter down to the grassroots level of the game. And that's, in a nutshell, is the background to this dispute. Because starting from the position that um, the agents are working for the club, FIFA, the global sports governing body, took action. And it's important that it's the global body because football is a global game. And one action that they took from December uh, 22 um, was to implement FIFA football agents regulations, which were to come in force from the 1st of October in 2023. These regulations bring in a licensing regime for agents. And as part of that regime, they limit the amount of money that can be paid to football agents. So specifically, there's Article 15 of the FIFA Football Agents Regulations, 
which sets a cap based upon the transfer fee for a player's annual salary, which is essentially 3%. Now, the football agents claim that the price cap is a restriction of competition. Their claim is that Article 15, by establishing a maximum price that can be paid, restricts competition. And the football agents bring an arbitration claim under Rule K of the English FA rules. Now, the English FA, ultimately a member of FIFA, is obliged to ensure compliance with the FIFA rule. So it has adopted the National Football Agents Regulations, and it's technically the National Football Agents Regulations adopted by the FA that are being challenged, but because their purpose is simply to implement the FIFA Football Agents Regulations, FIFA is also a participant in the proceedings. Now, the final point is that this is England, no longer a member of the European Union, and the dispute is thus being brought under UK competition law, specifically um, Chapter 1 um, of the Competition Act 98 provisions. But it's accepted by all the parties to the dispute that the EU competition rules would apply in the same way. What's also important is this is England, and the English Premier League is by far the most important league commercially. So if the regulations cannot be implemented in England, they essentially can't be implemented anywhere. And FIFA will be back to the drawing board. Thank you, thank you very much for that background. So that, that tells us what the case was about. And I think they had the hearing in September and they gave us a decision in November, at the end of November. Um, tell us what the decision was. The decision is simple. The fee cap is a restriction of competition. There's competition for agent services, and this competition is restricted because football agents' clients are no longer competing for agents' services by offering a higher fee. There's very clearly a restriction on the price that clubs will pay for agents' services, and indeed, that was the very purpose. Is that finding surprising? In many ways, no. What is surprising is that it is different from a finding made by the Court of Arbitration in Sport, which was addressing the exact same regulations. Now, the CAS panel had concluded that there was no inherent restriction of competition arising from the very same regulations. CAS panel had said there was plenty of scope for competition, but the CAS panel had viewed the market very differently. The way the CAS panel described the situation, the agents worked for players rather than the agents worked for clubs. And within that domain of agents working for players, the CAS panel had found there was plenty of competition and that the measures did not restrict that competition. Can I just, before you go on, there was some criticism, I think, in the arbitral panel's decision of the CAS panel's decision 
and perhaps of the level of scrutiny and engagement they had with competition law. Is that fair? So uh, the tribunal did explain why it had reached a different view. Um, first, as I explained, because it viewed the market very differently. This was competition between clubs for agents' services, whereas the CAS panel had said there was competition between players for agent services. One of the things that the tribunal had also said that they had very much more evidence available to them than was available to the CAS panel. So in shorthand, the case was probably better presented. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, uh, an important point is actually how careful the tribunal is with the evidence. It was addressing a key claim that was made um, in, in both disputes, which is technically the applicability of the router's judgment. Essentially, what was going to happen would be that we wouldn't get to the stage of asking whether or not there was a restriction of competition if we could say that the sports regulator was acting with a public purpose. Okay. So if it could be said broadly that the regulations were brought in to fulfill a specific public purpose, we would not get to the stage of asking whether or not there had been a restriction of competition, uh, which I say the answer is very clear and straightforward. And so what the tribunal had asked for and been presented before the tribunal was a timeline about how and why these regulations came into being. What FIFA was saying was that it was acting in the interest of the game and had consulted widely. What the timeline analysis shows was that the decision to fix the fee was taken well before there had been any consultation and that the reasons why the fixed fee had been adopted came well after the decision had been taken. And so it was not possible to rely upon the Vouter's judgment. So whereas the Vouter's judgment had played a large role before the CAS panel, it played no role before the tribunal. And, and to put that another way, one thing I thought when reading the decision it is uh, the distinction that's made between, for example, justifying a restriction because it's in the interest of the sport, competitive balance and those sort of things, or where something is really just a pure economic measure. And, and is it fair to say that in, in this case, they were seeing this much more as an economic measure that didn't really have much connection with competition or balance in sport? And, and that was possibly a reason why the, the claim was successful. So before both the CAS panel and the tribunal, there is a question about what is the nature of a regulatory body? a sports regulatory body, and whose interest do they represent? So the authority presents itself as representing the interests of the game or football, but it's clear that it might represent the interests of clubs, players, fans, or indeed have its own interests. And so what the tribunal was doing was, in looking at the measures, was teasing out in whose interests were these measures adopted. FIFA clearly had recognised this before the CAS because in both disputes there's a lot of discussion about how much consultation there had been. 
and that is clear that to rely upon this Wouter's judgment, there needed to be a representation of the broader public interest. What the timeline analysis appeared to be showing was that the measures were not adopted as a representation of the broader interest, the broader sporting interest, but really in the interest of a particular partisan party. So this was a measure that appeared to be adopted in the interests of clubs. The consultation was a, a fig leaf, really. Um, what's the effect of this on the football agent regulations? The fee cap element of the football agent regulations have not effectively come into force. And there's a declaration that it would be an infringement of competition law were they to be brought into force in England. And can I, can I just explore this element first a bit more? Because I, and I know what's happened since, but assume for a moment that FIFA did insist on it and said every national association has to have this fee cap. Am I right that the decision in England is essentially it's unlawful, so it cannot be brought in in England, whatever FIFA say? Absolutely. So it certainly cannot be brought into force in England. There are injunctions preventing it from being brought into force in Spain and Germany. And so there's a question as to where it might be legitimately brought into force. And given that in the largest markets, there are actions preventing it from being brought into force, it really is that FIFA will have to go back to the drawing board. And in, indeed, I think the, the day before the transfer window opened, they announced they're suspending the whole regulations for now while they're trying to work out what to do. So it is a bit of uh, a chaotic situation. Absolutely. What are the wider implications on uh, competition law and sport do you think that we can get from this decision? Which, but by the way, as I understand it, was the, the tribunal involves some of the most senior um, ex-judiciary in England who are often the most senior arbitrators in sport in England as well. Um, particularly the uh, tribunal involves Christopher Varther, who was the UK judge before the European Court of Justice um, when the UK was a member of the European Union. So it has very good experience of these issues. And, and so what do you think the impact of this decision will be on sport and competition uh, issues generally? I think there are perhaps three um, particular elements that I might highlight. The first is the nature of sports regulatory bodies. The way that FIFA had acted was really suggesting that it was not bound by much or any law mm. at all, and that it could decide what would occur, and it would occur. FIFA's power is essentially if you don't play by its rules, you can't participate in its competitions. That, that, okay, that's what I'm used to sports governing bodies saying to my clients every day. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's the nature of its power. So the first thing that um, this, and I think all the cases are showing, is that, that um, there are some rules for sports regulators. A second point would be, um, particularly from the EU element, is the scope of any sporting exceptions. There's a broad body of rules that apply. And the question that is arising is, to what extent do we cease to apply those broad body of rules because this is sport and that somehow sport is special? That's a live question, a live debate, and we'll see across 
the broad range of litigation to the extent to which sport is special. For competition analysis specifically, there had been this question about how to analyse disputes. When looking at a restriction of competition, how is it to be decided that a restriction of competition exists? A lot of the dispute is about whether or not these are restrictions of competition by object. And the judgment does find these are restrictions of competition by object, which shows that that is still a useful mechanism. One of the things that had been happening in uh, competition law disputes was that whether or not you could establish a restriction of competition by object had been suggested to be much more complex, involve much more analysis, maybe involve economists <laughs> um, to establish a dispute. What the judgment shows, and what the dispute shows, is that it is possible to establish a restriction of competition by object still, and that a dispute or case need not be overly complex when, in truth, the issues are not overly complex. And to a point Ravi made when discussing the European Super League case also, that uh, an object infringement was established on the basis that this is what the rules are really about, that that, that is the object of the rules. Okay, Natasha, uh, I'm going to turn to you next to tell us about the Royal Antwerp case. Let's start with what it was about, who brought it, what were the important matters of dispute in that case? Thanks, Nick. So at issue in this case was the homegrown player rule. And there's two slightly different versions of the homegrown player rule that the case was concerned with. They, are, they were the rules of the Royal Belgian Football League and the UEFA rule. And not much turns on the difference between those, so I'm not going to talk about that in very much detail, but I'll look at the UEFA rule uh, in a little bit more detail in a minute. So the procedural history is somewhat complex. The underlying case was a claim for compensation by a Belgian player, uh, referred to in the judgment as UL, who sued the Royal Belgian Football League, arguing that the homegrown player rules that the league applied were void under two provisions of the TFEU. Article 45, which concerns free movement of workers, and Article 101, which, put simply, prohibits agreements between undertakings or associations of undertakings in this case, which have as their object or effect the restriction of competition. So UL's club, Royal Antwerp, intervened in support of him in that claim for compensation. The Belgian Court of Arbitration for Sport dismissed the claim, holding that there was essentially no interference with free movement and no conflict with either provision of the TFEU. UEFA was not a party to those proceedings. So UL and Royal Antwerp were obviously not very happy with that and they applied in the Belgian courts to set aside the ruling of the Belgian Court of Arbitration for Sport. And the Belgian courts referred the European law questions to the European court. The Grand Chamber considered this and UEFA intervened. Now the UEFA rule, of which the Belgian rule was a slight variation, is that clubs must have no more than 25 players on their match sheet, of whom at least eight must be what's called homegrown. So in this context, that means that the player must have trained with that club or with another club in the same national football association for at least three years 
between the ages of 15 and 21. And at least four of the eight players must have been trained by the club itself. So what the Belgian court asked the CJU was whether Article 101 TFEU about competition or Article 45 TFEU, free movement of workers, essentially precluded these homegrown player rules. So quite big questions. Um, one might have expected them to have been resolved before now if, if there was going to be a problem there because the rules have been around since I think about 2005. Now the Advocate General mostly focused on free movement, but the CJEU looked at both free movement and competition. And they described Article 101 as the first step and Article 45 as the second step in what's essentially a very similar type of analysis. So in terms of 101, which is what I'll focus on today and what we're focusing on in the podcast, the court said that insofar as sport is an economic activity, then it's subject to EU law. So fairly elementary proposition, but essentially what the court is saying is that sport might be special, but you're not that special. Only certain rules, which are adopted solely on non-economic grounds and which relate to questions of interest solely to sport, can be regarded as being extraneous. Now that's all sounds like quite a lot of verbiage, but I, I think what the court is really saying here that essentially if your rules are about amateur sport that have no economic implications whatsoever, then you might be okay. But other kinds of rules that do have implications for economic activity are going to be covered by the standard provisions of the TFEU. So all other rules do need to comply with those provisions. So at paragraph 57 of the judgment, the, the court says, since such rules come within the scope of the treaty, they must be drafted in compliance with general principles of EU law, in particular, the principles of non-discrimination and proportionality. So if football associations or other sporting associations were in any doubt, um, they, that doubt must now be dispelled. You've got to be really careful about how you draft your rules because EU law will certainly apply. At paragraph 58, the court says there's no exemption here uh, for sport. Rules of this kind have a direct impact on working conditions and the composition of teams and the participation of players in competitions. So you better make sure you comply. As to whether these particular rules, homegrown player rules, are a restriction of competition and thus contrary to Article 101 of the TFEU. There's two different types of restriction of competition that they could be. The first is a restriction of competition by object and the second is a restriction of competition by effect. Now that's quite an important distinction because if you have a restriction of competition by object, then you don't need to go through the motions of proving the consequences of the restriction, the actual effect. So if something is a restriction of competition by object, then sort of prima facie, uh, it falls foul of Article 101. And the court didn't really answer definitively either question. They said that it is going to be up to the referring court, i.e. national courts, to determine whether in any individual case, a homegrown player rule or any other kind of sporting association rule which has a potential effect on competition, is up to the referring court to determine whether those rules are by their nature a restriction of competition by object or whether they have anti-competitive effects. And so I think the interesting and important thing for us uh, and for sporting associations generally is um, that they're going to need to be very careful about how these rules are drafted. 
And in terms of determining whether something is a restriction of competition by object, the court says, well, you've got to look at the rules, you've got to look at the degree of potential harm, the resources that are available to professional football clubs, any detriment to cross-border competition. And then the court says that what is going to be particularly relevant is the proportion of players that are affected by these homegrown player rules. So those are the factors that the court says are going to be relevant to determining whether something is a restriction of competition by object that is kind of on its face. And then they say, well, it's, if, if there's no restriction of competition by object, then it's going to be up to the referring court or to national courts to look at the effect. If there is an effect on competition, then it's up to the national court to look at whether the effect is justified. And that entails essentially a proportionality analysis. So you've got to look at whether it's justified by a legitimate objective in the public interest. That's the first limb. The second limb is whether the specific means are genuinely necessary for the purpose. And then the third limb is, do they go beyond what is necessary? For example, if your homegrown player rule has the effect of eliminating all competition or almost all competition, then that's going to be held to go beyond what is necessary um, for the purpose. So the court is allowing here the possibility that you could have a homegrown player rule that is a restriction, that does have the effect of restricting competition, but that it could be justified by a legitimate objective. As long as it doesn't go too far, it's going to be a careful balancing exercise. And the court gave the example here of anti-doping rules, which is said are justified even though they do restrict competition because they safeguard the fairness and integrity of competitive sport and ensure equal opportunity in sport. But essentially the court's saying you've got to be damn careful because these questions about justification will only apply if you're in the second limb of restriction of competition, that is restriction of competition by effect. If you've got a restriction of competition by object, then we don't even get into these questions of justification and proportionality. And the court leaves that possibility very well open. So it could well be that this then goes back to the Belgian court, which finds that there is a restriction of competition by object. And then homegrown player rules in all different contexts would be in a hell of a lot of trouble. If the Belgian court finds that this is a restriction by effect, then it will go on to consider this proportionality analysis, whether it's justified, whether it goes too far. So I, th I think you've answered uh, the, the next question, but let me just get clear for, for certainty. Um, they haven't said then that the homegrown players' rules are lawful or unlawful. They've said what the analysis has to be to answer that question. That's exactly right. And now right. someone else has to answer it. Is that That's right? That's exactly right. And I think that there will probably be a lot of sporting associations that have assumed to date that homegrown player rules are fine, whether because they don't engage Article 101 at all, or because if they do engage Article 101, they're restrictions that are justified by the legitimate objective of fostering local talent and, and, and other related objectives. And I think this is probably going to make some sporting associations sit up and listen uh, and be a bit worried, perhaps rightly so, that there is a possibility here that however legitimate your objective, however proportionate your means, if it is a restriction of competition by object, thanks for coming. Yeah, I mean, I, I was asked by a journalist the other day whether some of these decisions mean it would be possible, for example, for um, the Cricket Association in Saudi 
to be able to bring in more international players and challenge the ICC's homegrown players rule as anti-competitive. And I, I gave the usual lawyer's answer, it depends. Um, <laughs> what is the answer to those type of questions, Natasha? I think we'll see plenty more challenges along those lines. I, I think this court decision really opens the door to that kind of challenge. And I, I would expect to see lots of clubs trying to do just that. For what it's worth, my money would be on the Belgian court saying this is not a restriction of competition by object. That would have quite serious implications. And they weren't that concerned in the underlying, the, the arbitral award, which held that it wasn't even applicable. There wasn't all that much concern about this. So I'd be surprised if it went back to the Belgian court who then said, well, it's a restriction of competition by object. I think what's more likely is that the Belgian court will say, okay, let's look at the effects. And on balance, we, we think it's justified and we think it's proportionate. But we might find that we go back to the European Court on this or, or, or related questions, either from this league or from another league very soon. So the key takeaway for sports governing bodies is likely to be that um, these rules need to be carefully thought about and they need to be proportionate, not go too far, not just impose a blanket rule, but you need, you need a lot of thought in there to, to be able to justify it. Is that yes, fair? Yes, exactly. You've got to justify it really carefully by reference to the criteria that the European Court has, has outlined um, and, and definitely don't make them go too far. I'm going to turn to the ISU case now because I think looking at these concepts in the, in the context of concrete cases is, is often the best way to understand them. And, of course, it's a very important case. So, Kieran, tell us about that. Well, the International Skating Union, or ISU, is a sports federation. It's headquartered in Switzerland. It's a private association. And it's the International Sports Federation uh, responsible for figure skating and speed skating on ice. So it's ice skating. It's basically the regulatory sports body for ice skating. It follows the classic pyramid structure in sport. Its members are numerous national associations that participate in those sports, and in turn, other clubs, uh, associations and athletes, and then members of the national associations. So it has a similar federation structure to, to that found in football and other sports. Its objective is to regulate, administer, govern, and promote ice skating around the world, which is predominantly a sports function, but it also organizes, promotes, and markets international competitions and gets involved in the Olympic Games. And that brings the ISU into the commercial world. So in EU law speak, that means it's also engaged in economic activity. Now, the central part of this case essentially involves the ISU as a gatekeeper to that economic activity. The ISU clearly organized the most prestigious competitions in ice skating, but under its rules and regulations, it also had the power to give prior authorization to any other skating competition that was organized either at an international level or at a national level. So permission to run those other competitions had to be sought. Indeed, it had to be sought six months in advance of the event, unless the organizer was a national association, in which case it got the benefit of a three-month notice period. What that means in practice is that the ISU had a veto over the ability of another organization to set up a rival competition. So we, we see immediate parallels with the European Super League case. One of the initial bases upon which the ISU gave itself power to refuse permission included the adequate protection of the economic and other interests of the ISU. 
Uh, you may ask, well, in what circumstance are they going to see that their economic interests are promoted by giving permission to a rival competition? So that I think they saw the writing on the wall on that one, and they uh, they amended, modified that rule. But nonetheless, throughout the period in question, up to 2016 and onwards, uh, the relevant rules did include a power for the ISU to refuse permission for a rival competition on the basis of the impact on the financial revenues for the ISU itself, uh, because it said we need those revenues to administer and develop the sport, promote the sport. So there was an underlying financial rationale for refusing permission, which is something that the Court of Justice came on to consider quite closely. What happens, though, if a rival organisation simply sets up a competition regardless? Well, the answer is that the ISU could impose regulatory sanctions on the individual athletes participating in their own competitions. They could effectively rule that the athletes would be ineligible for the ISU competitions, which include the uh, prestigious world, uh, world sporting competitions that they were organising. And indeed, that ineligibility, that ban, could operate for life on certain athletes. So immediately alarm bells are ringing. You've got a, a body which can stop somebody else coming in to set up a rival uh, competition. If a rival competition is nonetheless established, then you get into the golfing situation of the, uh, of the sports, the athletes themselves being banned from participating in, in the prestigious and predominant competitions. Now, uh, for those of you still awake, you'll have seen that there's a conflict of interest here in this situation on the one hand, uh, the ISU is making money from organising professional competitions itself, and on the other hand, it was able to impose specific conditions on the organisation of rival competitions by other businesses. And the power of veto obviously had real teeth, because if you're a professional speed skater, you're not going to want to sacrifice your career for the sake of a, a, a new competition that may have limited appeal and limited um, duration, um, ruling yourself out of the World Championships. Now, the dispute arose because there was a complaint by two professional speed skaters from the Netherlands who were affiliated to the Dutch National Ice Skating Association. They complained to the EU Commission that those rules violated EU competition rules found in Article 101, TFEU, and Article 102. Article 101, as we've heard, is the prohibition on restrictions uh, from agreements that um, uh, distort competition, and Article 102 deals with abuse of a dominant position. The uh, ruling from the Commission dealt uh, with Article 101 and the subsequent decisions dealt with Article 101 only. So the Commission found that the rules violated Article 101. They found that they represented a decision of an association of undertakings uh, which affected trade between member states and that issue is then not appealed. So that that's you can lock that in as a, a, an unappealed finding. That was simply the outcome. Sorry to jump in. An object restriction? Well, I'm coming on to that. Ah, <laughs> so uh, the, co the Commission basically found that these rules were an object restriction of competition in the relevant market. The relevant market, by the way, again, was one of these things that rather went under the radar in this case. It was simply found to be the organisation of the professional sport itself, but also the associated rights, the commercial rights, for example, to obtain sponsorship, to get broadcasting deals and so on. So the associated commercial rights... But uh, absent from the court's analysis, and there were two court decisions in this case, is really any detailed consideration of that market analysis. Again, it was simply one of those features that was rather locked into the decision and, and the ISU didn't bother to appeal against it. But in terms of the, the meat of the issue, the, the Commission found that there was an object restriction of competition 
Alternatively, that the effects of these rules uh, was also to restrict competition. So they, they did the classic thing of saying, we think this is an object, but if we're wrong on that, then the effect is in any event anti-competitive. The Commission then looked at the separate question which we've been discussing of exemption and found that the conditions for exemption weren't met. And so therefore they ruled that the uh, eligibility rules and the requirement for prior authorization uh, were void. And they required the ISU to stop them immediately and, and not put them into effect anymore. In, in that sense, Kieran, it, it went further than the European so Super League case, which didn't actually decide um, uh, uh, on rules that are currently in existence and send it back to the, the Spanish court. You're, you're saying here they actually said you can't, it, they're unlawful. That's a feature of the procedure by which the European court came to rule on this case. So this was a case in which the European Commission, having taken a decision, uh, the ISU then applied through an application for annulment to the General Court of the EU, which is the first instance court in, in Luxembourg. They applied to annul that decision. Uh, the only court that has power to deal with European Commission decisions and rule them to be unlawful is indeed the Luxembourg Court in the General Court in the first instance and then the Court of Justice on Appeal. In contrast, the European Super League was what's called a preliminary reference from the Madrid Court the complaint that was brought before the Madrid court uh, was against the UEFA ruling on the European Super League. And essentially what then happened was the Spanish court referred the question of the compatibility of that UEFA decision with EU law to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So the Luxembourg court doesn't have power to tell the national courts ultimately what to do and what the outcome must be. They simply give a ruling on what the law is and then it's for the national court, be it the Belgian court in the Royal Antwerp case or the Madrid court in the ESL case to determine whether or not those rules do in fact infringe competition law. Um, more interestingly, perhaps, the Commission also considered that the ISU's approach to arbitration uh, was unlawful as a matter of competition law, not because uh, the requirement to take any dispute involving the ISU to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, in Switzerland was was by itself necessarily unlawful, but because it reinforced the anti-competitive effects of the um, uh, the rules themselves. And I'll come on to explain that in a bit more detail when looking at the court's judgment. So as I've said, there was an application brought before the general court. The general court, uh, some couple of years ago now, ruled that the uh, competition provisions were in fact infringed by these rules. However, uh, the general court ruled that the requirement to take any dispute to arbitration did not infringe competition law. And essentially what it found uh, was that there was uh, no particular objection to arbitration in itself as being anti-competitive, which was common ground actually with the European Commission. Secondly, the General Court found that the Commission had not suggested that the arbitration rules themselves infringed the rights for fair hearing. And that's true, the Commission didn't take issue with that. But then significantly, their third and fourth findings were uh, controversial. The third finding was that the requirement for a binding and exclusive determination of an ISU dispute before CAS pursued a legitimate uh, objective. It was appropriate for a sports body to have that binding and exclusive arbitral power if it wanted to do so. And uh, fourthly, the fourth finding, which was also controversial, was that there was an effective remedy available to anyone who was disgruntled with a particular decision because they could either bring a complaint before the EU Commission or they could bring an action for damages before the national courts, regardless against the uh, regulatory body in question. 
The next stage was then an appeal was brought by the ISU before the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. Um, there was also a cross appeal brought by the two complainants, the, the two athletes, against the findings on arbitration. So you have an appeal and a cross appeal. The Court of Justice um, typically has an advocate general who gives an opinion, a non-binding opinion. Interestingly, in this case, Advocate General Rantos uh, delivered his opinion in December 2022 and essentially upheld uh, the conclusion um, that uh, this couldn't be an object restriction and that couldn't stand. And he proposed remitting the matter to the general court for further consideration. So he was effectively overturning the general court's decision that there had been a anti-competitive restriction by object in this case. Scenes then set for the Court of Justice to deliver its judgment in the trilogy of cases that were delivered on the 21st of December of 2023. As I've indicated, relevant issues not to be considered by the court were, was this a decision of an association of undertakings? Answer, yes. Um, did it have an impact on a particular market? Answer, yes. Did it affect trade between member states? Answer, yes. So none of those issues come for dispute. What the four key issues that the court had to determine were, was this a restriction by object? Did the court somehow err in its treatment, or did the commission, sorry, somehow err in its treatment of object versus effects? Was, were these types of rules objectively necessary so that they don't fall foul of the prohibition full stop? And finally, it needed to rule on the arbitration issue. The answer to the first of those questions was that these rules did infringe competition by object. And they did so effectively because they operated to shut out a rival competition from participating in the relevant market full stop. So that's a very extreme example of anti-competitive conduct. It was compared with, for example, price fixing, imposing production capacity constraints or allocating customers between rival firms, all of which is a competition no-no. What the court ruled was that essentially what was happening here is that a rival body was being excluded from the market entirely, uh, unless it could be said somehow that the relevant um, restrictions could be justified by way of an exemption. And interestingly here, the ISU had chosen not to appeal against the findings on exemption, so that escape clause was not available to the ISU in this case. So object, uh, the court's key findings really, paragraphs 145 and 146, were that this had the object of shutting out a potential competition from operating, and that therefore an equally efficient undertaking or one which was seeking to bring innovation through marketing or format or competitive uh, parameters of a rival competition, um, could simply not get off the ground. And that was held to be sufficient to establish an uh, uh, infringement by object. The court found that the commission had not confused object and effects. It's simply that the European Commission, as it usually does, had hedged its bets and said, well, if it's not an object, then we find an anti-competitive effect. So that uh, objection to the commission's decision also failed. And the court then held, consistently with its approach in the European Super League, that where you have an infringement by object, you don't get into this issue of objective necessity or ancillary restraints. So that the Vauters Mecca Medina approach doesn't apply if you have a restriction by object. So the only avenue available to you is an exemption, 
and as I've indicated, the exemption findings were not appealed. Turning then to arbitration, and this is where the judgment has real interest. The court found that the requirement for a binding and exclusive determination by CAS, subject only to an appeal to a Swiss court, did not provide effective protection for EU law rights. And I'll come on, Nick, in discussion to talk about the potential impact of this on arbitration generally and arbitration in the UK specifically. What I think really got the court's goat was there was no option for interim relief to be sought seemingly before CAS or before a national court, which would have um, enabled somebody to stop these rules in their tracks before they bit uh, and hit home. So you, all you had was the ex post facto remedy of a, a claim for damages, and that was held not to be sufficient by itself. The court also poured cold water on the idea that a complaint to the EU Commission would provide effective remedies because, of course, the Commission might not take action or it might take years. Uh, or in any event, the, the Commission itself had relatively limited remedies available to it to, to remedy the particular issue. They simply had to say the rules would, would stop being applied, but they had no power, for example, to award compensation. So these are uh, very significant findings. I think you can infer from them that the European Court has taken a public policy view that any arbitration, if it's to afford effective relief to EU law, has to at least countenance the possibility of there being a national court behind, capable of reviewing the decision, and more importantly, a national court that is capable of making a reference to Luxembourg on the proper construction of EU law. And, and because Switzerland isn't a it's not member, a, not a member of the, of EU. the EU, like Britain, mm. its national court, it's Swiss Federal Tribunal that reviews the CAS decisions can't do that. Correct. Or doesn't do that. And that's, yep. that's the problem. That's the problem with CAS. So th this is a, um, it's the European Court, if I can put it politely, uh, defending, as it's entirely right to do, its exclusive jurisdiction to rule on the validity of European law, i.e. Yeah. the scope of, of European law and how it applies. Yes. Be before coming on to uh, the very interesting question about arbitration and where this puts us just on the, the 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 rest of the case that you've described uh, and its overlap with the European Super League um, uh, case uh, generally speaking surely these cases and uh, and this tendency uh, is going to open up more debate and disputes about breakaway leagues isn't it well I think there's three takeaway points uh, if I can put it this way uh, first uh, it's been described as a trilogy or trio of cases I personally think in keeping with Douglas Adams, this is a trilogy in four parts, because all of these cases follow on from Mecca Medina. Mecca Medina was the case, as you well know, it's in your book, um, that established that the sporting exemption does not exist as such. And before Mecca Medina, there'd been a lot of debate about is sport exceptional? Does it have a different category? Uh, and what we see with these four cases is an attempt to draw the line between what I've described as a purely sporting rule so something that necessarily goes to the integrity of the competition itself, and uh, the commercial exploitation of sport, which enables one to draw a distinction between situations in which competition law will apply and situations in which competition law won't apply. And so what we're seeing here, I think, is a watershed moment where because of the growing popularity of sport, and let's be honest about it, because of the growing commercialization of sport, and it's now big bucks, what we're seeing is that competition law is now being applied 
to that commerciality. And so what we're seeing is now that any rules of a governing body which impact on uh, the nature and extent of the people participating in the competition will be potentially reviewable for compatibility with competition law. Now, I think uh, uh, another important point actually is what is the market? And what you don't really see in ISU or in my view, actually in ESL a great deal of is a specific analysis of which markets are affected by these rules. And the court's taken a much broader brush on that. It said, well, hold on, these are you know, multi-million pound commercial endeavors with huge amounts of money at stake. Businesses are, are getting into it. We don't need to worry unduly about market definition because it's clear that you're, if you're organizing a professional sport, um, that is enough to bring you within the scope of, of competition law. And I think, uh, for example, if, if one's talking about Cherry Hinton under nines, which OK is managing, you're not going to have a competition dispute if, for example, two businesses are, are, are trying to offer OK's team sponsorship on their under nine shirts. That isn't going to invoke the great competition minds uh, of the day. Uh, what we will see, however, is that if there is a regulated professional sport which is trying to shut the door at and I'll mention one caveat in a moment, then that is going to be reviewable. Um, my third uh, point is simply an observation that whilst I've described this as a watershed moment and it, it, it's an evolution, and what we're seeing is a, a quite a grown-up approach to the uh, uh, application of competition law to sport. You can go back to 1922 in the United States for the first baseball decision involving antitrust, uh, and in that case, there was then a de facto exemption from antitrust law for baseball for, for many a year, and it's subject to uh, scrutiny at the moment. Um, even as recently as 2021, there was, for example, the application of antitrust law to college student sport with the remuneration of college students in the NCAA and Alston case. So we are, I won't say we're catching up with the United States, I, st I still think we're way behind their application of antitrust law to sport, but what we're seeing is a more developed, evolved approach to competition law in sport um, from what was arguably the high water mark of the sporting exemption back in the late 90s. Mm. Uh, and obviously these are interesting times to be one, a competition law and a lawyer and two, a sports lawyer. So um, we'll have to see what it, what it, uh, what it brings. Those are my three general observations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it, that, that takes us on to the last part of this podcast where I want to be discussing in a li little more detail some of those um, general tendencies we're seeing. Okay, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, so, so first in relation to a purely sporting rule um, and whether or not it is ever possible to distinguish a sporting rule from a rule affecting commercialization. So take, for example, football, a game of two halves of 45 minutes. Um, one of the problems there is you've only got half time to sell your advertisements on television. When you play at mini soccer under nines, it's a game of four quarters of 12 and a half minutes, more time to sell advertisements. Um, now, mini soccer apparently play games of four quarters to give children a rest, to allow you to organize the te teams exactly. So for perfectly sporting rule, sporting reasons, um, the game is different from adult football, but also does have an effect on the commercial, the ability to commercially exploit the game, although it is not exploited. So if you were to change the rules of football um, for perfectly um, 
sporting reasons for when the World Cup is played, longer breaks, water breaks, because it is so hot, etc., did have an impact on your ability, the time available to sell advertisements. Can you say that those rules are never open to challenge because they relate somehow to something inherent in sport? Um, there's, all, there's also, what I didn't understand is something purely sporting where there are 11 players on the team. Um, during summer, people like to play five-a-side or seven-a-side. Some people who could be good enough to play in an 11-a-side team aren't the best seven or the best five to be in that team, and they're excluded from the commercial opportunities for, for doing so. So although those are the rules of the game, it's not very straightforward to separate them out from things which have a commercial impact because they all had a commercial impact. Well, I, I'm going to try and do the impossible now and, and um, bring this back to a few topical and even quick-fire questions. Okay, so Ravi, considering all four of the cases that have been discussed today, do you identify a change in the approach that courts and tribunals are taking in this space? In, in other words, can we identify that there's now more scrutiny on sports governing bodies from a competition law point of view, whereas many people thought they may have had a bit of an easy ride before? Um. I'm not sure there was an easy ride as such, but I think actually, number one, there's more relevance to competition law where arbitral panels or courts were not necessarily as willing to grapple with the points. And I think all of these cases show that. Um, in terms of outcomes, I think once you get into that frame, then the analysis under competition law, I think it's more likely that courts engage with it and therefore ask questions. And a lot of the judgments led to that. They didn't necessarily say one way or the other which rules are right, uh, even though they have hints of it. But a lot of them said there's going to be more scrutiny, there's going to be more process, and an impact on the freedom of sporting associations or private companies to do what they want. I don't think it's actually limiting. It could be an opportunity to look at stuff that hasn't been looked at for a while and also for governing bodies or private parties to sell more explicitly what their product is. And I think fans are responding very positively to that. So I don't think as where we started, there's not a clear winner or loser as such, but I think it's definitely putting everything under the spotlight more. Uh, and there seems to be an interest from certainly courts and lawyers in these topics. Kieran identified the distinction there, the line, I think he described it, between sort of purely sporting rules and commercial rules and where the courts and competition law is going to be more likely to intervene uh, where it's a commercial rule. And, and, and LK explained how, you know, it's often difficult to draw the line. But one thing that struck me in terms of a very topical issue is football financial fair play rules. I know there's been some discussion of this before, but of course it's very topical again now. Unlike, and I noticed in the FA case, they, they looked at uh, FFP rules and they looked at salary cap rules uh, and they kind of put them in the same category. Um, salary cap rules in the United States are often justified on the basis of competitive balance between competing teams. And one can see the argument there. If you all can only pay a certain salary, you have a competitive balance. Financial fair play rules in football are not justified on the basis of competitive balance. And there's a very strong argument that they're antithetical to it because what they do is they allow you to spend more if you earn more so that they protect the status quo, the wealthier clubs. 
those rules therefore seem to me to be rules that do not naturally fall within the uh, inherent for sport but are more of a commercial type of rule. Are they now more open to competition law challenge or not? Well, uh, Nick, you and I have history on financial fair play. Um, so uh, I'm going to be, I hope, neutral in, in my observation that um, financial fair play, one of the justifications for it was to try and dissuade clubs from a boom and bust cycle of trying to go for the promised land of the premiership um, Premier League in, in circumstances where they would spend money short term but there wasn't necessarily the long term uh, financial support for the club which meant that uh, fair weather supporters might come in uh, spend a lot of money in a short period of time but then not be there for the duration if it didn't pan out uh, and financial fair play rules as you know were developed in the context of quite a lot of insolvency or administration uh, positions uh, that, that clubs were finding themselves in uh, and with a view to preserving the integrity of the sporting competition between a large number of clubs. So obviously when one club goes bust, the primary debtors are going to be other clubs, transfer fees and, and so on. So th there was an underlying rationale for it. If what you're putting to me is that those sorts of rules uh, become more susceptible to review on competition grounds as a result of these three cases, I think the answer is un undoubtedly yes. Uh, and there will, no doubt, I'm confident, be more litigation on this sort of issue. But I, I do come back to um, where has the court gone with these cases? And looking at the ESL case in particular, I think what they've tried to do is, is to find some sort of Aristotelian balance. So everything in moderation, nothing in excess. And providing that you have put down clear, ascertainable rules that are objectively necessary for a particular public policy rationale, be that the integrity of the sport, the integrity of the competition, or more generally, then uh, sports regulations and rules should be capable of being justified either as being objectively necessary or indeed benefiting from an exemption. But I think what sports bodies will have to do is, is perhaps work harder to uh, justify the stance they've taken in the yes. face of opposition. Yeah. Well, th thank you. That was a, a silks quickfire answer, but a very good one, nevertheless. Um, I, I, another question. Um, competition law. We're, we're, I'm surrounded today by competition lawyers, but I noticed in the FA Rule K case, a bit of a footnote, but the point about restraint of trade and this old day's medical argument that people used to have, in fact, Kieran and I had against each other, that you can't really bring a restraint of trade case if you've got a competition law case. They say in the Rule K case that's gone because of Brexit. You can now argue restraint of trade. Um, you're, not you're not restricted from arguing it. Uh, there must surely be times, mustn't there, when in particular if you're talking about players being banned or something like that, a restraint of trade might be much more attractive, simple, less expensive claim to bring than a full-fledged competition law claim. Would, would I, people no, agree I agree. with that? I agree. You don't need experts to run a restraint of trade case. Um, I agree respectfully that the day's medical point, which um, I argued unsuccessfully uh, back in the day in that case, uh, has gone. Come what may. I never thought it was a, a correct decision with respect, but um, it's gone because the point behind it was you, you can't have a decision that runs counter to whatever EU competition law tells you to do, and we don't have 
directly applicable EU competition law now. Yes. So, so what distinguishes restraint of trade from competition? Um, in my view, it is the interests protected by the doctrine. So a competition dispute would affect not only parties to the agreements, but third parties, whereas a restraint of trade is going to be concerned with the parties restrained. So where a restraint of trade claim might fail, because as between the parties, there's no issue, even if both parties are happy with restrained trade, third parties might be unhappy with the impact of that restrained trade and bring a claim. So um, I think why I'd always struggled with um, Days Medical was the doctrines were essentially about different things and it was slightly annoying that they'd been fused together and that you could be prevented from bringing a claim about one thing because a dispute had uh, although although there are there have been decisions mm. of the English courts that have said um, because the restraint of trade is a matter of public policy and makes something unenforceable as a matter of public policy, there are occasions where even if the parties themselves do not um, claim a restraint, the court won't impose any injunction for an unenforceable restraint on public policy grounds. I've certainly seen the court do that under the common law restraint of trade um, uh, 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 proposition before. But is that because one of the parties to the restrictive arrangement no longer wishes to be restricted? Uh, it, it it may well be, uh, but I've, I've seen it in one case where a third party intervened and joined in and made submissions mm -hmm. that an injunction couldn't be made because of, because of that. It was in, a, in fact a sports case, as these often are, to do with boot sponsorship. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, another question, um, which is the whole arbitration point. And it, it, it's very interesting because we all know that those of us who, who practice in this area, that um, increasingly nearly all sport has compulsory arbitration clauses of one kind or another. And in fact, in in series of ISU cases, they've come under some real scrutiny now. First, in terms of European human rights law in the Pechstein case, and the inability of CAS to allow for a public hearing in certain cases, that's had to change. And now this second ISU case, which um, suggests, as I understand it, that um, if you can't get the same kind of remedies you may be able to get on competition law grounds from the European court, the arbitration clause may be... Um, may not bind. So I, I just want to think of a situation in England Let's say we have a uh, foreign uh, football player, a European football player, uh, who's got a contract with an English club and he's required to follow an arbitration clause that doesn't have the same remedy. Um, would he be able to get out of that on the grounds that uh, he, he ought to be having a right to go to the European court to get interim relief? Uh, well, you'd need to think about whether or not that individual is bringing in an EU law claim. Yeah. Uh, well, presume he, he did because he was trying to get out of the arbitration clause. Well, what would the EU law claim be? Uh, that a clause was anti-competitive, a clause in his contract. But we don't have EU competition law apply in the UK anymore. So he'd have nowhere to go? Well, uh, he, he could 
make a complaint to the European Commission uh, if he wanted to do so. But if he's simply a, relying on UK competition law, then UK competition law doesn't apply EU competition law anymore. Therefore, this particular concern about arbitration doesn't apply. Uh, is, there a, is there, though, a parallel? Could a parallel argument be made that because you can't get, let's say it's a, a classic restraint of trade case, very simple, because you're in a particular arbitration unable to get the relief you may be able to get in the courts, therefore the arbitration clause ought to be struck down or, or not applicable in the same way? No, because the reasoning is confined to the effective protection of EU law rights. And it's a jurisdictional point taken by the court in Luxembourg to say we are the final arbiter of... Oh, no, I, I understand that. My point is, couldn't the same argument be developed and tested well, here? Uh, firstly, arbitration in this country is subject to the Arbitration Act, and therefore there is review by the courts in certain circumstances. And secondly, our courts have been encouraging of arbitration and think that arbitration does provide a fair hearing, does give the parties redress... Uh, and in fact, there are statements from our court saying that arbitration is in principle to be encouraged between commercial parties. Okay. Slight, slightly different because I understand nothing about litigation. Um, but, um, so the first thing is to work out what are the advantages of arbitration. And I'd understood that it was prevalent in the sporting world because of the need for speed. Um, looking at... Um, the injunctions granted um, in Germany um, and the references to the Court of Justice in relation to the FIFA regulations, although there are ongoing proceedings, they're not going to be heard uh, and finalised for at least another 18 months. So that would be 24 months to get a sense of those regulations, which were essentially supposed to already be in force and there's still no court of justice ruling expected. So the arbitration uh, proceedings have been important to get some certainty quickly. Um, one of the things that I'd initially understood about arbitration was that it was private, um, and so that you could settle a dispute privately. Um, and so what I found interesting about the uh, ongoing arbitrations is that the awards are published absolutely um and i wonder if you, you could comment on um uh that that development and what that it, it's sort of no, means. you you highlight a very um interesting point about uh, sports arbitration being a kind of hybrid between commercial arbitration which only binds the commercial parties is private and confidential and so on usually and sport where you have a regulator as one of the parties as you did in the cost capping case the fa the FA rules, in fact, provide that whenever they're a party, the Football League have the same rules, their awards must be published because they have a regulatory impact, not just on the individual parties, but on other parties. And they, to a certain extent, have a precedential value. So it does um, stra strain the, um, the sort of traditional approaches to arbitration that the English courts generally uh, apply when one looks at sport. Let me um, ask one final question. Um, do all sports lawyers now need to be competition lawyers? Uh, well, I think they probably should have been familiar with competition <laughs> law, uh, throughout, because obviously it's, it's one of the core areas which is usually litigated. Um, can I just pick up on the arbitration point? Yes, I, please. I, I appreciate that you wanted to bring closure to this, but can I, can I just say where I think it does bite the arbitration ruling? 
And that's where, for example, if you're challenging a pan-European rule as well as a domestic sporting rule. Yeah, so a UEFA rule, for instance. Yeah. For example, yeah. if you are necessarily having to bring some challenge to an EU-wide rule, I think there is a real risk now that you will inevitably get involved in the question of EU law, at which point, uh, if you get a final binding arbitration award, there's a risk of it being set aside in the courts of another member state, a, a member state, say France, for example, on the basis that it's contrary to public policy for the award to have been given on EU law in a state which is no longer a member state. Could, yeah, can I just ask a technical question on that? So assume you're in the UK yes. and you are a UK citizen or a, 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 an association, a, a company or a club or something, and you're bringing a claim against an international rule that applies in Europe and has an effect in Europe, and you're saying it's anti-competitive, um, and you're, you, you're not through the English courts allowed to go to the European courts, and you're not through English arbitration allowed to go, but you might be to cast. Can you still argue that then? Uh, I, if I were that club in that litigation, I think I would try very hard not to plead any EU law whatsoever because you run the risk of winning your case in an arbitration and then for the international sports body to seek to have it set aside. And of course, not all sports federations are headquartered in Switzerland. Some of them are headquartered in France or Germany or the Netherlands. Uh, and it would be an obvious answer, uh, having lost the arbitration for the relevant regulatory body to then seek to set aside that decision in the court of a member state of the EU. So you've got to think tactically about how far you now rely on EU law. If you can avoid relying on it, then you won't walk into this particular problem. Does that mean that all sports lawyers really have to be competition lawyers now as well? I think I'm obviously partial, but I think <laughs> I think it is definitely it has to be part of your toolbox um, because these points are arising in my experience in so many cases, so many issues across the board. And because of the increasing commercialization of many sports, um, I think it will become more relevant over time. So I think being capable to converse the language is a key tool in being a sport lawyer nowadays. And, and just a final question, that applies in England or, or the UK as much as it does in Europe still, does it, despite Brexit? Absolutely. Competition law in England is a separate thing which will have a long life and is very busy at the moment, both in the CAT and in other jurisdictions. So Brexit doesn't really change that at all. Um, Brexit raises questions about divergence and um, comparative approaches, just like we've had with American sports for a long time. But I think it's absolutely here to stay and it's, and it's not going anywhere. In fact, it's probably increasing in importance. What I would say is that everybody should do competition law because it's one of the most interesting areas of law. I think what's, what competition law needs to do is more clearly articulate the broad nature of the harms that it is seeking to prevent and that people should be familiar with the broad nature of the harms that competition law is seeking to prevent. I think uh, on a final point, one of the things that's been interesting um, about these disputes is about the nature of the forum in which genuine issues are discussed and debated. One of the things that, in relation to the Rule K issues, have been that is a genuine concern that not enough, there's plenty of money, but how that money is distributed into in a game is not fair or appropriate. 
What's clear, however, is that you couldn't scapegoat the agents and just impose a rule, that there ought to be a better forum for that discussion and debate to take place. Um, when you're talking about financial fair play, etc., perhaps a football regulator rather than a, a legislated regulator, um, a political, uh, more open debate, might be a better forum for those discussions. And so what these challenges really do, more broadly, is to move the debate from within the regulator and make them more pub um, more public um, than they have otherwise been. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I want to thank all our guests for a fascinating discussion and for, at times at least, uh, m making an area of law which can often seem uh, too complex with its own language more understandable to our listeners, but at the same time having a a good debate about some of the more complex areas for, for those who, who want to listen to it. I've certainly seen competition and restraint of trade issues raise their head far more frequently in sports cases over the past years. And I'm sure that tendency will continue. Uh, and those of us who practice in this area and also the tribunals we appear before are having to become more and more familiar with the principles. And I think the, the key takeaway for me is to see competition law not as a separate area of law in a box that only special experts ever deal with, but something just like contract law or employment law that a sports lawyer needs to incorporate and those in this sector need to incorporate into their practice. And I hope this podcast will help that process of, of, of people doing that. So thanks again for the guests. The final thing I want to say, slightly off field, is to thank Nathan de la Cruz, <laughs> who is our producer and sits here patiently throughout all these discussions about object restrictions. This is Nathan's been with us since the beginning, and this is the last time he'll be physically present uh, because he's relocating to Australia, but may still uh, be involved in editing. And I should mention, for those interested, that Nathan has his own podcast, He's part of something called, is it uh, Cheat Coders, which is a Filipino-Australian podcast on arts, culture and comedy. I'm sure available in all good podcast stations. So thanks for all your support, Nathan, and thank you to all our listeners. You've been listening to the Sports Law Podcast with me, Nick DiMarco of Blackstone Chambers. For more information, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and of course visit our website at www.blackstonechambers.com.